0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, everybody. Pleasure to be with you here in beautiful Geelong. I've never been here before, and the drive-in was absolutely breathtaking. So um, I sent pictures back to my wife. I went, this is, this is stunning. So it's a pleasure to be here. I'll give you a Texas greeting. Howdy, y'all. Uh, 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 I usually say that when we're in the States, we really like someone who comes and speaks with an accent. We tend to think that what they say will automatically be more true. So today, you get to hear the accent. And uh, so it's, it's a real pleasure to be with you. I come to Australia and New Zealand every other winter in even-numbered years for about a month to six weeks, and I'm usually in Auckland and Sydney and Melbourne, and so it's a pleasure to be here on a city-on-a-hill church, although I have to say I was looking for the hill that the church would be on, and I did notice a slight incline on walking the way in, but, uh, but it wasn't what I expected, and then I realized, well, it's a metaphor, It's a metaphor, of course, for city on a hill in Sermon on the Mount. So what I want to do with you this morning is I want to tie and take you through the career of Jesus in about 30 minutes. And to summarize it in 30 minutes, it's going to be a fast exercise. At one point, it will be responsive. I'll be asking you some questions to respond to me, which is a little bit unusual, so I'll I'll coach you through that part. But I, I really do want to take you through this. And here is the dilemma that I want to pose for you. When you share Jesus with people who you know, um, you actually have quite a challenge on your hands in creating a category that many people don't have. And here's what I mean: uh, Jesus Christ, according to the church, is one of the most unusual figure human beings who's ever lived on the earth. There is no one else who's ever been like him before. Um, He is the only God-man who's ever walked the earth, which means that he's one in a gazillion. And a gazillion is a very large number. You don't have enough fingers and toes to count that high. And so how do you communicate to someone a category that they don't have? And more importantly, how did the Bible present Jesus in talking about who he was? Now, you could simply say that... um, I'm just going to say who I am and that be the end of it. But that isn't really going to work. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through the life and career of Jesus. But I've got to do a couple of things first before we get to some of the passage that I want to walk through. And we can put the slides up on the screen so people can follow me. That'll be great. Um, so here are, um, here are some of the rules that historical scholars, this is the professor coming out of me, I teach New Testament, Uh, rules that people follow when they talk about the historical Jesus to people who may or may not be welcoming of what it is that the Bible has to say about Jesus. And one of the rules that they go with is what's called multiple attestation. This is the idea if something is in the various levels of tradition that feed into the Gospels, uh, multiply attested like getting multiple corroborating witnesses for an event, uh, then that's more likely to go back to Jesus. Or the second category is called embarrassment. It's the idea that the church would never write a story that would go like this. They'd never make up a story that would go like this. That's going to be very important to us towards the end of our message. Third one is it's got to fit in the time frame in which it's a part of. That's cultural plausibility. And the fourth one is, in the end, it has to be able to explain how Jesus got to be crucified. Because the one certain thing that everyone recognizes about Jesus is that he was crucified on a cross. So how in heaven's name did he get there? And so that's part of what is going on. But before I go there, I have to deal with one other fact, and it's this. Some people actually believe that Jesus Christ never existed, and I tell my students, if you get me in an ordination exam, a question I'm likely to ask you is, are you aware of any witnesses that exist that talk about Jesus Christ that are not Christian in nature and that come from about the time that he lived? Okay So just think about it. so you can't cite the New Testament, you can't cite anything in the Bible. you've got to go elsewhere. So that's where I want to go next. so if we turn the slide to the next slide, you should get this. Josephus was a first-century Jewish historian. He actually was a general. He was captured by Rome at a place called Gamla. Uh, you can go to Gamla today and see the remains of where he was captured. And, uh, and he wrote four works Well, he actually predicted when he was captured that the general who led the Roman invasion of Israel would be emperor one day. So, when the general did become emperor, he said, You know that Jewish guy who predicted that I would be emperor one day? I think I'd like to have him around. And so he was invited in to live with the emperor, and he wrote four works Antiquities, A History of Israel, starting from Genesis. Then he wrote a work called The War, which is about the war that he fought with the Romans trying to explain kind of the, what the Jewish position was in relationship to that war. He wrote a work called Against Appion, which was a defense of Judaism to someone who was out of the Greco-Roman culture, and then a work called Life, which was his biography, the theme of which is, what a great man I am. And so that was Josephus, and Josephus wrote about the reality of the, uh, uh, about the crucifixion. We'll go ahead to the next slide. And the text runs like this. Uh, Now, there was, Josephus was not a believer, but there was um, a man about this time, Jesus, a wise man, and then you'll see the brackets, because the text that we have from Josephus was copied by Christian copyists for a long time, and they didn't like that that Josephus didn't say enough about Jesus, so they made some little additions along the way. That's what's in the brackets. But most classical scholars working with this text will say that this is an authentic text of Josephus with the additions that we're able to spot, and they'll be transparent as I go through this. So it says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, so you can always see the hint that the copyist wanted Josephus to say more, For he was a doer of wonderful works. This is the Greek word paradoxon. It means the word, it's where you get our English word paradox from. It's unusual things. This is a recognition that Jesus had a reputation as a miracle worker. Uh, A teacher of such men has received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And then the second edition, he was the Christ. That would be a messianic confession that Josephus, who was a Jew and not a messianic believer, he wouldn't have said that. And then the text goes on to the next slide. When Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. This is a recognition that Jesus was crucified and that Pilate and the Jewish leadership were responsible for that crucifixion. So not only did Jesus exist, not only did he perform wonderful works. But the crucifixion as presented in the Gospels is something that Josephus testifies to. Josephus is writing the end of the first century, having lived in Galilee in the very area where Jesus had ministered earlier on in that century. And then here's the last edition, and I almost want to hear Handel's Messiah in the background of this. It says, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And you can hear the chorus going off in the background. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Okay, that's an addition. That isn't part of the original citation. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct uh, to this day or at this day. So that's the citation from Josephus, a non Christian writing at the end of the first century, acknowledging that Jesus Christ did exist and that he was crucified and that he had a reputation as a miracle worker and that the Christian movement. Uh, emerge from his life and ministry uh, in Galilee and in Israel. So that's the premise for everything that we're going to do in what I'm about to show you in this overview. So next slide, please. Now I want to talk to you about cultural scripts because in order to understand what I'm going to talk about, you've got to understand a cultural script. This is the part where I want you to interact with me. So a cultural script is something embedded in the culture that you get because you're a part of the culture, but if you weren't embedded in that culture, you might not understand what's being said to you. Okay, that's a cultural script. Here's an example of a cultural script. I've tried to pick one that will work in an Australian context. We'll see how well I did. At Batmania, okay, Dennis Lilly takes the new ball before tea to try and close out the Queen's men and retain the ashes. All right? Okay, so here's the question for you. What's that about? Cricket. Okay, very good. All right, so we're on, we're on a good, good plane here. Good start. Okay, now, I will tell you that's a perfectly wonderful English sentence, written in wonderful English, communicating very clearly what it is it intends to communicate as it's there. All right? But if I gave this sentence to someone learning English in Saudi Arabia... And gave them an Arabic English lexicon dictionary, and they translated every word. If they didn't understand the culture, they would not have a clue what that sentence was about. Now, just to show you how cultural scripts work, okay, we're gonna continue to probe this a little bit. Not only is this about cricket, but what else do you know as a result of that sentence? Uh, okay, all right, yeah, Dennis Lilly is an old, and the reason I picked him is uh, I was at the, uh, at the Melbourne Cricket Grounds yesterday, and I saw the statue of Dennis Lilly as I was walking in, and so I thought, well, I'll pick Dennis Lily. Uh My normal sentence when I do this for Americans to confuse them is to go, and Ian Botham walked to the crease to defend the ashes on behalf of the queen, okay, and uh, same kind of idea. But here's the point. Batmania tells you what? Where is this cricket match? In Melbourne, okay. And what else, what else do you know? Uh, who are the Queen's men? Okay, so it's Australia against England, and you would know that by another clue in that sentence. What is it? The Ashes, all right? So here's the point. Cultural scripts are shorthand. They're shorthand that open up what's going on in a passage. And that shorthand means that I can say in a very brief space and introduce you to something far more significant that's going on than what I'm actually telling you. Here's an interesting thing about that sentence. If I were to push you, let's say I were a defense lawyer, okay, and I was in a court of trial and I would go, how do you know that's about cricket? The word cricket is nowhere in that sentence. What would you tell me? What? Dennis Lilly was a cricketer? Okay, you'd begin to deal with the content of the sentence. Very good, all right? And so, and that would be something that could be checked or corroborated? That's a great answer, all right? But I want you to notice that I can talk about a topic and introduce a topic without using the word that is around that topic. Okay, that's another way cultural script is shorthand. Now, all that is to say that the Bible, particularly the Gospels, are loaded with cultural scripts. Sometimes the writer tips his hand on the cultural script, and sometimes you need to know the culture in order to understand what cultural script is being invoked. So I'm now going to take you through a series of events where cultural scripts are at play, all right? And the first one is the healing of the paralytic. Now, this happens to be one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. And I tell people that i that i sometimes i think a bible is better if you can see it and hear it okay so i'm going to try and visualize this passage for you and here's how it starts jesus is in a room crowded full of people okay and there's a group of guys and a paralytic who want to get in but there's no room at the end so they crawl up to the roof and the first thing that you hear is woopah 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 second thing you see are little flakes coming down from above Third thing you hear is this, uh, 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 plunk, And in front of Jesus is sitting, this was perfect for this, okay, is sitting a paralytic. All right? So here he is sitting there. He's come to be healed. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. You know, this is not in the text, but I want you to think out loud with me for a second. Okay? He says to the guy, your sins are forgiven. You're the paralytic, you're sitting there and you know why your buddies have dropped you into the meeting, okay? And Jesus says to you, your sins are forgiven. What are you thinking? This is not why I crashed this party, okay? That's not why I'm here, okay? Meanwhile, there are in the room theologians, okay? The theologians in the room are saying, No one can forgive sins but God alone. That's the cultural script in this passage. So, Jesus knows what these guys are thinking, even though they don't say it out loud. Um, I love this part of the the passage because it makes me think, um, be careful what you think in front of Jesus because he knows what you're thinking, okay? And you can't stop thinking in front of Jesus, so be careful what you're thinking. Anyway, so... So Jesus turns and he, and he asks this question, and I as a professor like questions like this because I teach classes in which I'm trying to separate who's ready for ministry and who should be doing something else, all right? So here's the question that he asks, what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Okay, you got to think about that question. Because in the one sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But if I say to a paralytic, get up and walk, it's showtime. Something's got to happen. But in fact, there's a trick going on here. It's a tricky question because how many of you are able to see sins being forgiven? You ever seen sins being forgiven? I mean, can you help me out here? Uh, I mean, I don't know how you see sins being forgiven. By sin, so glad you stopped by, hope you never come back again. I mean, how do you deal with that? And, and you look like a pretty friendly lot of people, okay? But I know that some of you are a mess. So I go, your sins are forgiven because I have compassion. And how do you feel? Not very different, probably, right? So how do you see sins being forgiven? So Jesus is going to show something rather than declare something. Or actually, he's going to put it next to a declaration so we can understand what's going on. So he says this. In order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite name for himself. Simply means a human being. Happens to be a human being out of Daniel 7, however. He's not any normal human being. That's a cultural script. Okay, he's a human being who rides the clouds in Daniel 7. And There's only one figure who rides the clouds in the Old Testament. That's God. So I've got a human being who's God combined in a cultural script called Son of Man. He says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. Here's what he's doing. He's taking something that you cannot see and linking it to something unusual that you can see in order to connect the two things. He is showing who he is, not just declaring who he is. And so when that paralytic gets up and walks, his walk talks. And his walk says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And there's a message built around a cultural script in which Jesus is showing who He is by what He does and not just by what He says because the only way that paralytic gets up and walks is if God is at work through Him. And so that's what He's showing. And so that's the first brick in the wall. Who has authority to forgive sins? Only God has authority. Remember the theologian said? That's in the background. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. So how do those sins get forgiven? You're supposed to meditate on that. Okay, so that's the first scene. Multiply attested, one of Josephus's wonderful works, and what you see and what you can't see is linked together. So I'm going to show you something that you can see as a basis for saying showing something that you cannot see, and this is who I am. Okay, that's example number one. Example number two, Let's flip the slide, Sabbath controversy. Okay, now the cultural script is we have to appreciate the Sabbath. The Sabbath is, you can help me with this, the Sabbath is called whose day? The Lord's day, okay? God created six days. On the seventh day, he rested. In the, great, in the Ten Commandments, we're told to rest on the seventh day to make it holy. So, so the seventh day is the Lord's day. It's a big deal. And you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, okay? We're all grateful for the idea that every now and then it's a good thing to just take a break from work. So we're grateful for this. This is a nice gift from God. And so the question comes to Jewish people, very naturally, if I'm not supposed to work on the Sabbath, what am I not supposed to do? So that's the cultural script for this text, or at least a part of it. So for that, next slide, I'm going to give you a portion of, oh good, I can read that, that's amazing. this comes from the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the Jewish codification of the oral tradition around the time of Jesus, written, actually done just after the time of Jesus. And here is a passage from Shabbat 7-2, that's in case you want to check the passage out later, um, on what's called the 40 less, 40 less one, the 39 things you cannot do on the Sabbath. Okay, I'm going to th- read through this, but I've got to jazz it up a little bit because... Resting on the Sabbath is a problem. So when I get in the middle of this, I'll put a little beat to it. It says, the generative categories of acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one. That's where it gets its name from. Here we go. He used sows, plows, reaps, bind sheaves, threshes, winnows. This passage is in the background of a text where the disciples are going through the grain fields and they're plucking grain on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leadership comes up to them and says, Why are your disciples doing that which is not permitted on the Sabbath? Okay, so enter the cultural script. Okay, bind, sheaves, threshes, winnows, selects, fit from unfit produce or crops. That's where the disciples are violating uh, the tradition. Grinds, sifts, kneads, bakes. He shears wool, washes it, beats it, dyes it, spins, weaves, makes two loops, weaves two threads, separates two threads, ties, unties, shows, you guessed it, two stitches, tears in order to sew, you guessed it again, two stitches. He who traps a deer, slaughters it, flays it, salts it, cures its hide, scrapes it, cuts it up, sorry, no hunting on the Sabbath, okay? He who writes two letters, erases two letters in order to write, you guessed it again, two letters. He who builds, tears down, puts out a fire, kindles a fire, he who hits with a hammer, He who transports an object from one domain to another, lo, these are the 40 generative acts of labor, less one. And you read that and you go, they thought about this. They thought about what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. And the question that they're asking is a serious one. Why would you violate one of the Ten Commandments? Why would you violate the Lord's Day if you are faithful to the Lord? It's a perfectly legitimate question and Jesus responds in four ways first he talks about the showbread that was only for the priest that David and his men got to eat in the Old Testament so can you explain that one secondly he says have you read I desire mercy and not sacrifice that's coming from one of the prophets Third, he says, and what about the priests on the Lord's Day at the temple? Are they busy? Okay, I mean, think about your ministers here on a Sunday. All right? Now, those three just introduce the fact that there might be exceptions to the rule. And if he had stopped there, it would have been a wonderful conversation. But he says one more thing. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, that is a different argument. Who gets to be Lord of the Sabbath? And what does that mean about who he is? So Jesus is taking a cultural script and a cultural context He's performing certain roles. In the next scene, he heals on the Sabbath. So now God's going to work through him on the Sabbath to show that he has this authority. Anyway, who has the authority to be Lord? And another brick goes in the wall. Son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of man has the right to forgive sins. All right, next slide, please. So what we're seeing is a problem of authority over the Sabbath, Over God, acting on the Sabbath for a sinner who violates the Sabbath. That's what the Sabbath healings are all about. And Jesus is showing who he is alongside declaring who he is. All right? Next slide, please. Next slide is Peter at Caesarea Philippi. This is the scene where Peter is confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus responds, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Okay, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And Peter has a great disciple moment, okay? He stepped, up, he stepped up to the crease, okay, and he's hit a six, all right? Yes, as an American, I know that figure of speech, all right? So he's hit a six and doing very wonderfully. And then Jesus says this, and the Son of Man must suffer. Now, I love Peter because Peter is one of those people who says what he thinks, In fact, he so says what he thinks that if it goes in his mind, it comes out his mouth. Okay, He does not pass go, and he does not collect $200. If he thinks it, he says it. And so when Jesus says to him, the Son of Man is going to suffer, Peter goes, no, 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 you don't understand the Messiah. Messiah doesn't suffer. Messiah comes to bring victory. And Jesus complimented him for this remark by saying, get behind me, Satan. Okay, because there was a, there was a crosshairs between that cultural expectation and what it was that Jesus was doing. But what this passage was saying was, in the context, it, the question got asked, who do people say that I am? And the choice was a variety of prophets. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Or you are the Christ of God. Or you are the Christ The son of the living God, this is CNN. Okay? All right, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're different responses. The point that was being made here is that Jesus is at the center of what God is doing. He's not just one of many messengers who's been sent to reveal the will of God. And Messiah is built around a set of expectations about authority. Jesus is more than a prophet. He's at the center of God's plan. And that sets the stage for everything that happens in the last week of Jesus' life, including the crucifixion. So next slide, please. This is a picture of a replica of, the, of Jerusalem in the first century, that if you go to the shrine of the book in Jerusalem, this is what you will see as a part of that museum on the history of Israel and the Dead Sea Scrolls, etc., etc. You can see how big this repl- replica is because people are standing in the back looking at their the rendition of what first century Jerusalem was like. This is a big sight. Um, you are looking at uh, reproduction of the temple facing towards the Mount of Olives, okay, which is gonna be on the other side of the Temple Mount. And in the middle is the Holy of Holies which is the most sacred spot for a Jew on earth because that was where God was said to dwell in his glory. What you don't know is, is that to the right, okay, to the little little set of, I guess, homes that are to the right of the temple is a place called the city of David, okay? One of the most used Psalms in the Old Testament, this is a cultural script, one of the most used texts in the Old Testament is Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy a footstool for your feet. Make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the point here is that the king, city of David, the king is seen as a vice regent serving with God. Okay, And this is memorialized in the geography of Jerusalem. That's going to be important to some of the texts that I'm going to be talking about next. So that's the cultural script. See, part of what I have to do, because it's a cultural script, is explain the cultural script so then you'll be able to appreciate everything that's being said in the text. So, next slide, please. So we come to the Jewish examination of Jesus by the Jewish leadership and the high priest. It's during this examination that the Jews gathered the evidence that they were going to take to Pilate and say to Pilate, you need to crucify Jesus. This is sometimes called a trial. It's actually not a trial because the Jews themselves cannot execute Jesus. They don't have the legal authority to do so. Only Rome can. So this is like, and I don't know how this works in your legal system, but in the United States, this would be like a grand jury deciding whether or not someone should be charged with a crime or not. Okay? Only this is the gathering of the evidence so they can make the case to the one who's going to make the decision in Rome. In the midst of this text, Jesus is asked by the high priest, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Okay, that's why we looked at Caesarea Philippi, because he elicited a confession from Peter said that he was. And here's what's going on here. Rome is responsible for appointing those who are kings in Rome, those who uh, manage different areas, Herod's, for example, were appointed by the Romans. Rome appoints the kings for the Greco-Roman Empire, and if you are a self-appointed king in the Greco-Roman Empire, the Romans are going to come after you because they believe in law and order. You follow our law or we'll put you in order. And so, so there's something at stake. Rome makes the kings in the country Someone doesn't self-appoint themselves to be king. So the high priest asks, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, that's Psalm 110, 1, coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, that's Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 put right next to one another. Both cultural scripts. The idea of being seated at the right hand of God is the idea that you are a vice regent of one kind or another employed in executing the will of God. And Daniel 7 is the figure of the Son of Man riding the clouds going to the Ancient of Days to receive judgment authority from God. Okay? Jesus put those two together. The high priest gets the theology of what Jesus is saying. And so what he does is he tears his clothes. Another cultural script. What does tearing your clothes mean when you hear something like this? It means, I think what I just heard was blasphemy. So now I'm in a situation in which Jesus is saying, in effect, you can do whatever you want to me now. You can put me to death or whatever, but one day I will come back and I will be your judge. And God will have appointed me to that role. And when the high priest heard this, he was, to use a German phrase, "nicht fro, which means not happy. And we have a choice. The choice is either Jesus is exalted, as he claims to be, or he's blaspheming. Those are the only two options. Okay? So that's what's happening coming out of the trial. Now, I could take time, I'm not going to do it, to walk you through whether Jews debated whether someone could sit with God in heaven Because the other thing that Jesus is saying is, you can put me to death, but God is going to vindicate me, to give me this position of judgment that I'm talking about. So he's telling them what's going to happen, even though they're going to put him to death. And he's saying, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God, and then I like to have a little fun which means you can write me at www.righthandofgod.com after I'm crucified. Okay, so that's what's being set up. Okay, next slide. That brings us to the resurrection. Because remember, we got two choices here, right? Exaltation or blasphemy. Okay, Jesus' view is God's going to exalt me. The Jewish leadership view is uh, that's blasphemy. Okay, now I'm going to test your mathematical skills. Okay, and if math made you nervous in school, I apologize for the next few moments. All right, but this is is not hard math. You don't have to have a degree in calculus. You have two choices. You take one away, okay? Two minus one leaves what? One, okay? Two minus one leaves one. So that's where we're headed, all right? So the choice is exaltation or blasphemy. The tomb goes empty. Who's responsible for resurrecting Jesus? God is, okay? So if God takes away the blasphemy, what's left? Exaltation, okay? It's not hard, see? You can do this math. So, um, so what about the resurrection as an event? This is where the criterion of embarrassment that I mentioned earlier, all the other events that I've talked about were multiply attested But now the criterion of embarrassment comes in, and here's how it works with resurrection. The resurrection is not an event that would have been invented by the church in order to explain Jesus. That wouldn't have worked because of the way they tell the story. Here's how it works, and I want you to use your imagination with me a second. Imagine it's Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and you're in the public relations meeting of the Christians who are disappointed because their Messiah has been crucified. And you're having a meeting, and the theme of the meeting is, how do we keep hope alive? We just lost our Messiah. Okay, so they're all gathered around the table discussing what's going to happen, what they should do next, what in the world are they going to say to the public, etc. And someone raised their hand, I have a great idea. Here's my idea. I think we should go out and we should preach the resurrection. A resurrection, remember that, you know, you're filling in a gap here if you're inventing this. We should preach resurrection, and then as an aside, you need to realize that this is an event that most people don't believe, okay? Sadducees don't believe it within Judaism. Greco-Romans don't believe it. They even believe in the immortality of the soul, or when you die, you are totally dead. Okay, so you just pay taps and it's over, okay? Those are your two options there, okay? So we're going to sell this difficult idea And the first people that we're going to bring out to sell this idea is going to be women. Now, what you don't know or may not know about the first century is women could not be witnesses in a court of law except in very limited cases. They could identify in some cases of sexual assault, and they could identify a dead family member, but otherwise they did not count as witnesses. And the slide here tells you some of the texts that show us this. Okay, a woman as first witnesses. One of the Mishnaic texts reads, an oath of testimony applies to men, but not to women. Women can't be witnesses, that's what that means. Or another text says, any, woman, any evidence a woman is not eligible to bring, that says it outright. And then a later work in what's called the Talmud says, a woman is disqualified from giving evidence. So this guy raises his hand, he says, we're gonna sell this difficult idea and I want our lead witnesses to be people who culturally don't count as witnesses. And you go, no, that's not going to work. So the women are in the story of the resurrection because that's how the resurrection happened because it was countercultural. That's not going to be something that's made up. And if that's the case, then our choice between is Jesus this exalted figure of authority that some of these passages I'm showing you have been indicating? I haven't even told you everything. I mean, there's a series of miracles in Jesus' life in which he calms the winds and the waves that God has authority over, so much so that the disciples at the end of that event ask, who is this who's able to calm the winds and the waves? And they obey him. Or think about this one, the Lord's Supper. I actually like this one, the Last Supper. Okay, this is liturgy about the Passover given in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along and changes the imagery. "This is my blood, this is my body, and this is my blood what gives him the right to do that? My point is this, that the way the Bible has Jesus present himself in his uniqueness is he shows his uniqueness and he shows that uniqueness out of some of the cultural scripts that are at play in these various texts. And the ultimate display, the ultimate show, if you will, is the resurrection itself. In fact, I like to tell my students when they talk about, I, I like to say to my students, if you go into the church, you're probably going to preach on occasion on a day called Easter, okay? It might just happen, okay? And it tends to come around a little regularly. So you're probably going to go to the same sorts of texts over and over and over again, and if you're in ministry for 30 or 40 years, you're going to have to think about fresh things to say every Easter, and that's a challenge, what we tend to do with Easter is we tend to go to Easter and we think about, well, we're going to be alive one day because he's alive. In fact, we, we have memorialized this, okay? He is risen, and what's the, what's the crowd supposed to respond with? He is risen indeed, okay? Now, all very true, very important. But there's something even more basic than that that Easter is about. Easter is God's vindication of who Jesus is. Jesus is the solution to the two options on the table when Jesus goes to the cross. This is either about exaltation that God is in the midst of, or it's about blasphemy. And then we just apply mathematics. Two minus one equals one. Only exaltation is left. So that's the career of Jesus, summarized in about a half an hour, moving through texts. Applied to cultural scripts. And the point is, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then we all have to deal with him one way or the other, whether we recognize it or not. And that's the point. Is what God has done in Jesus Christ something that should impact every human being on the earth? The answer is Yes. And how do we help people create categories that they may not currently have? Because the idea of a God-man is an unusual idea. And it's through this means that the Bible not only says it, but shows it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to reflect on who our Savior is. And the fact that you have done a great work and shown your presence and your commitment to him, both through his life and ministry, but also through the resurrection. May we as your people come to appreciate how to reflect what it is that you've done in our lives through your grace, and to articulate who it is that Jesus is for a world that needs what Jesus offers. We ask these things in his name.